Slime Podcast. I like to eat, eat, eat apples and bananas. This podcast is a bit like conversation soup. I had 100 conversations about the climate emergency and I listened back, picked out all the really tasty bits and I've blended them together. I've been speaking to people about food. I love food. I love cooking. I love sharing food. I have an emotional, physical, important connection to food. My climates and I recorded conversations where and when we could, on the phone or on Skype, in lunch breaks and in stairwells. So the sound quality varies. Bear with us. I promise the content is worth listening carefully to. How are you doing? What are you having? We're having an African um, sweet potato and chickpea stew. Oh, lovely. Well, what about you? What are you having? Um, we are, I think, going to have couscous. Maybe some, I might put the couscous in some peppers, have some stuffed peppers. Mm. I think I'm having, it's called like mushroom wellington or something. I made a very nice doll to take someone's party. I've got some cashew nuts um, soaking at the moment. Uh, my plan is to whiz them up with spinachy stuff and you make a sort of creamy spinach that goes inside like phyllo pit parcels. I don't understand those people who you ask, so what are you having for dinner? And they haven't thought about it. I mean, how can you not have thought about your dinner? These conversations have made me change my diet. If it's someone that has never thought about this before and they want to take um, one action, I would encourage people to start with food um, because it is such an integral thing to all of us. I think it's because you can't, like, not think about it. Like, with fashion, like, I haven't bought clothes in about four months and... I mean, half of that's a bit of an attempt to buy less, but half of it's just because I can go weeks without thinking about buying clothes. And, you know, I can go weeks without thinking about needing a holiday, but you can't really go... You can't go more than a few hours without thinking about food, like... Yeah. So... And also, I guess we have a much more emotional connection to food. Yeah. And it's social as well. Yeah. Yeah. People understand food. They understand food waste. They understand sitting down together over food. They understand the value of, like, what you put in your body and farmers having jobs. And, like, there's something about food that's more tangible to people than energy and missions. And I think that I always come back to food as, like, if you wanted to do some kind of community development, work around sustainability and food is absolutely the place to start. We make cows produce more milk than they should, we make chickens lay more eggs than they should, you know, everything is always a question of we need more, 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 more. So probably the individual thing that we have to do is is decide to use less, 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 less. There was a time when the only, you could, if you drank orange juice, you were always drinking it from a fascist regime, you know, it was either from Brazil or it was from Florida where they were exploiting um, Mexican workers or it was coming from Israel um, or, you know, it was tough, you know, there was nowhere that you could drink orange juice that you weren't actually funding some people whose political views you didn't agree with. So do you not drink orange juice then? Maybe. So it's complicated. Maybe, you sh- I don't know. That's what I'm trying to find out. Like, maybe you shouldn't drink orange juice if you don't agree. But if you do that, then you put a lot of Palestinian workers out of work. So is that really what you want to do? Is that helping? I don't know. It's tricky. Yeah. Whoa there. Okay, this could get complicated. We are messy eaters. So many of us have become really disconnected to how and what we eat. Not everyone. Stanley lives on an island off the coast of Scotland and he works for his auntie's fish van. With the fish van, I feel like it's, it's um, offering a, a, kind of like a vital service to a lot of people. So, like my auntie, for example, like we... we you know, we'll go into a scheme and then, like, toot the horn, like, one ice cream van does, and everybody comes out, and actually, a lot of the customers are quite elderly people, and quite often my auntie would be, like, 
literally going into their house and putting the fish in the fridge for them. Do you know, it's the, that sort of service. It's a brilliant service that she provides. So in that way, I can balance that out. That I know that we're driving around, but then how else would you get those fish to those people? Do you know? And when we go to Judah, there's like, um, like folk are waiting for us down at the pier. Like, and I think to them it's like a kind of social gathering every Wednesday over tomorrow, where like they'll be waiting for the fish van to come down and like they'll buy their fish, and um, and fish is good for you. Um, yeah. Is there not and a, a problem with like overfishing in the oceans or? Well, there's like quotas now and stuff like that that the EU brought in things, fishing quotas. Um, and there was a huge thing for a while about if the fishermen over the amount of fish they're allowed to catch, they would just literally fling dead fish back into the water, which was like shocking. Cause it was, but it was because they just weren't allowed to land the fish. Um, but I think most of my father used to be a fisherman as well. Um, and I think most fishermen, um, like local fishermen around here anyway, um, are quite responsible because it's their industry and they quite they actually respect it. So they want to keep stocks sustainable so they can catch them later. So they are quite good at looking after what you know, what, what stock of fish is there. Um and I think like if you do it sensibly then like fishing and farming or anything else, I think it can it can be sustainable and it can work if it's done properly and we just get away from this whole like um like massive pig farms or massive like chicken farms i asked eric about it he works operating robots at the bottom of the sea and we heard bits of his story about noticing a massive decrease in fish activity on the ocean floor in episode one save the humans uh, to, to, to be fair to the oil industry, there's now evidence in uh, Congo, where I've worked as well, that the the big trawling fleets come through and absolutely decimate the seabed. But then, ironically, the oil industry come in and put structures onto the seabed, which act like artificial reefs. And it actually accelerates the you know, the regeneration of, of the seabed, as it were. Because, I mean, trawling just decimates the, the the seabed completely. And, I mean, that's where the whole thing starts, isn't it? I'm only just learning about it, but I was so shocked. I heard that they had nets that are 75 miles long. 75 miles? Wow. That, that, yeah, that wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, in some, some parts of the world, yeah. I'll call it what it is, it's a manufacturing process, <laughs> because it's been heavily industrialised, you know, I mean, agriculture's been heavily industrialised, the whole thing's been mechanised, it's very much, you know, manufactured, you know, food these days, um, and the oil industry's got close connections to that, big style in the form of plastics, etc. But in Kenya... You know, so many people still rely upon a personal connection to the land. And they they are the ones who pick the fruit from the tree and then transport it to the market and sell it. So, like, from, from growth to sale, a lot of merchants are still very connected to that process. And so, like, the mindset of of value uh, in how much energy is being used for all the components of that is just like so different in the in the different communities uh, and different societies and cultures. And in the U.S., it's just remarkable how much food waste still happens uh, after like so many years of of, of science and reports and YouTube videos and just educational resources that can make folks who are in those systems, in the food systems, more aware of their impact upon climate change, for example. And yet, changes haven't occurred because 
the system works, you know, there's employment and people are getting paid and the, the things are going in the way that they were set out to go and everything's working properly and stuff. I don't know the exact statistic, but it's somewhere around like 40 to 60% of non-perishable food in the U.S. is thrown away without ever uh, touching a customer's hand within a grocery store uh, because it's some FDA, you know, regulation about uh, not expiration date, but sell-by date. That that rule, it, it, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It doesn't, it, there's no sense behind that rule. Uh, for, for example, I used to go dumpster diving in Boston, and you could find all kinds of non-perishable food in the dumpster that had some sell-by date on it that would have probably lasted for another year or more. Uh, because, again, it's non-perishable. I can understand about the perishable stuff, maybe the dairy and the, and the fruits and, and meats and cheeses and things. But even in those instances, the sell-by dates often are like weeks before the, the food needs to be disposed of or, or repurposed in some way. Uh, which is just a system that is so limited. And I did a very minimal research on this because I was really um, curious and concerned when I was living in Boston. And, and one of the reasons, at least in the U.S., is because the disposal industry, all the folks that go around and collect garbage and then do whatever they do in the different facilities to sort it and to, you know, uh, repurpose it in whatever ways they're going to do it is a massive industry. It employs like millions of people. And if you, if you take away those systems about food disposal, then all of a sudden those people might lose their jobs. And then so like recreating that system to have a new way of, of looking at the impact of all that disposal and, and the FDA regulations and sell-by dates and all stuff, they don't want to spend time to figure that out. All the people with the power because, they are, again, there's a system that works, people are employed, they're feeding their families, everybody's happy except for that long-term nagging reality of climate change uh, that still, still is not on the forefront of, of concern, you know. Are people worried about getting sued? Absolutely. Uh, especially when those sell-by dates and expiration dates and stuff uh, have reached a point where, you know, like the, especially big grocery stores, like for example, Publix, uh, that's the one that I was thinking about when I mentioned before that statistic of like 40 to 60% being thrown away. If they give food to like a homeless shelter or, or even like a repurposed place or, or a low income, uh, um, like food distribution center or something like that, if somebody gets sick from that, then lawyers can make a lot of money off of suing the company that gave, you know, food that was expired to those homeless people. I think it's a bit easier in the UK to redistribute food, and we have slightly less waste, but it's still millions of tonnes. I watched a BBC film which says a third of food never enters a person's mouth. This is Lily, who works in a bakery chain. Unless a charity requests it, they throw it away, and it makes me really sad every time. Because like some like some days there's like not that much, but like some days there'll be like two full bags full of food, and I'm like, that's so unnecessary to me. That there's that much food that's being thrown away. Like whole batches worth of things that like we could have just not cooked, and it would have been fine, you know. So who decides how much you cook? not me mm-hmm. like people who are like higher up than me like I think about how many sausages and things are cooked in the morning and then the steak bakes the chicken bakes sausage rolls like there's so much meat and I, you know I know how bad meat is for the environment so uh, we used to eat quite a lot of stuff out of bins <laughs> it was really far north it was really cold so anything that got chucked out by the supermarkets we just go and get out of the bin. Yeah, like sort of skipping is like not legal to take things. People own their rubbish. 
I didn't know that. And like loads of supermarkets like put ink into bags of food that they're throwing out so you don't steal it. Why? Because then they're held accountable if you have their product. It's like the whole reduced items thing. Like a lot of places won't reduce it too far because people just wait until it's reduced before they'll come and buy it. So it's like... Yeah, but then other, and people are putting it in the bins outside apparently and putting ink in it so people won't steal from the bins. Ah, peace But we are so funny about, like, out-of-date food, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, it's funny you say that because I did that tonight with, like, it was a bag of salad and I was about to eat it because it looked absolutely normal and then I was like, it had the 19th of May on it and I was like, oh, no, I better not. And then I was like, but look at it. So I did end up eating it, but it's that thing of just like getting your mindset away from the date. Um, yeah, and it's totally a natural it. human thing to be like, yeah. I need to well, not be sick, right? Yeah. And it also says clearly on it, use by. So it's like a, a clear instruction, like use it by Tuesday or whatever. And I was like, yeah, okay. Um, I would definitely eat salad if it didn't look minging. Yeah, salad and and bread. Meat, meat uh, yeah, I'd be funny about meat, especially things like chicken. This is my sister-in-law, who lives in Banff in Canada, telling me about the Banff Food Rescue Lady, who works with local shops and businesses to collect food that would otherwise be binned. Three times a week, she opens up her house and people can come by, and they have a suggested donation of $2, but I think it can also be free, and you can come and take whatever food you want and use it and means there's less food waste. She also... Such a good idea. Yeah, it's great. She also um, sometimes has extra surplus food, so she gives some food to a lady she calls the bread lady, who comes from somewhere a couple towns over, and she takes it and feeds it to animals. And um, she distributes food through the library as well. They have a, a, a stand for food rescue that's kind of more canned food shelf like store cupboard things and she distributes food to other areas if she gets a surplus she had a surplus a while ago from a business that was closing up for the end of summer she got all of their leftover food and distributed it to the local community kind of in an outreach capacity and she also sets up appointments for new mothers or pregnant mothers to be to come by so they don't have to come at the food rescue opening times if it's really busy if they're coming with their baby, they can come at a, a time that's suitable to them to rescue food. Uh, have you heard of the wonderful app Too Good To Go? Yes, I have. I've been using it. Too Good To Go is an app where cafes, hotels and shops can post if they have unsold food that's going to be thrown away at the end of the day and folk can grab a bargain. You just get whatever's left over, so there's not usually a choice and you pay a few quid. I picked up half a brie, literally half a brie, um, and two eggs and lots of bread and some bacon and some trefo and some scrambled eggs and some porridge and some coffee and some fried tatty scones and half a tomato because I was being healthy. Which uh, would have otherwise gone into the food waste Exactly. System, so you've saved it. Small actions. So what does happen to the food waste that we separate out for recycling? I asked Kevin. Oh, no, exactly what happens to it. Um, it gets sort of put into a massive skip, which has a comb in it. It's called a tiger. It's got these big combs that go around, and they strip out all the plastic bags from the rest of the food waste. And then the food then gets sort of smashed into pieces, so they can be pumped around the site a little bit. And then it goes into a big tank for thirty days, called an anaerobic digester. And this tank is sort of bigger than a house, I would say. It's maybe like a size of a four-story townhouse, um, but it's round and there's two of them. And in there, there, there are microbes blasted at, at the food, which will digest the food waste and slowly turn it into methane. So obviously methane's a gas, so that goes up the top and comes out quite easily. And there's a steady supply of methane coming off because there's a steady supply of food going in. And they use the methane on site 
to generate electricity because obviously it, then you don't have to pay someone to transport the methane because it's it's gone there. And after the methane's been used to generate electricity, it goes through a carbon filter, so no CO two comes out, which is quite impressive. I thought. Yeah! Wow! Cool. There's there's a lot of liquid comes off as well from the, from the waste, uh, which is used as fertilizer, and it's sold to farmers. Um, you couldn't put it in your garden because it would stink, uh, and your neighbours wouldn't be too happy. And there's also a little bit of solid stuff left at the end. And that is taken away and that's used for landscaping, things like golf courses. So next time you see Tiger Woods standing on a brand new golf course, he's actually standing on top of your old chips. <laughs> I really feel that wherever possible, people should grow some of their own food just so they can make that connection themselves. They can see what's involved. Because as soon as you start, even to grow, you know, a few vegetables or in, in your garden or, or or collect even collect wild forage food you immediately see the issues there you can see that you know the effect of birds or mice or wasps or insects on 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 your crops and and you can you can learn how important it is to manage the the ecosystem in a in a holistic way so i think it, it's something that people can do, not just because it's contributing a little bit to their um, diet. Very, very few people, except for the real fanatical vegetable growers, really seriously um, provide you know a, a, a lot for their family to eat. But it's just becoming aware of 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 the balance that occurs within nature and and how we have to um, try and re restore that in order to to um, get any kind of yield at all from 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 what we want to collect yeah and anyone who's ever picked a handful of berries even or a jar full of yeah. berries will not ever waste any that's berries right. again because it takes that's, ages that's right yeah yeah and you use every every part of it i think i, think I know why it's happening you know so many of us used to work and live on farms before mechanization and so many people used to grow their own food because they couldn't afford to buy it and we've lost that you know, food is cheap, and um, you can, and convenient. You know, can we go and buy it conveniently without having to cook? I think people that haven't learned to cook from scratch also don't understand where the food comes from. I went to a farm open day in Aaron recently, and there was a lot of like literature about how the world's running out of food, and you know, we need to increase how much we're produ producing. Mm. I think that's that's not true, is it? It's not really true, no. We've overproduced for years and years. We basically, you know, as, a, as a global community, we waste an awful lot of food. So where is that so, coming from? So we Why waste like, more, uh, what is it, 30 or more percent of food. Sometimes in, in developing countries, we waste food because storage technologies are not enough. So people produce a lot of maize, for example, they store it, but a lot of it gets damaged or, or lost. In, in, um, in this country, you know, we can store all that food very well, but we buy too much. We have buy one, get one free offers, and then it sits in our fridge, and then we throw it out, and we waste so much food. And we, we, we go to a restaurant, and we have such massive portions that we, we waste a lot of food. So if we cut that down, that would be a massive start. We, we, um, we have all sorts of issues to do with how we work with supermarkets and you know, they will have a contract for, say, for a farmer to grow a load of carrots. And if the farmer sends in some carrots and, and some of them are not quite right, the whole lot gets rejected and they get churned back into the soil. You know, the farmer won't get paid for that and he'll lose not just his money, but he'll, all that crop, which is perfectly good to eat, just because it doesn't conform to certain standards, will be lost. So there's, And that's just a couple of examples of the, the, um, the things that are wrong with the system. So we really need to um, have a, a really big look at everything we do in farming and how we pay farmers and how we interact in the food system to make sure that we, we are really aiming to reduce our emissions, but we have a more just system of food production. Why do you think we've got ourselves into that situation and what are, why is it not moving? I think we've got into that situation because technology has really help the farmer um, but what hasn't helped the farmer is 
the system of support has not changed with the times. So we used to pay farmers to produce food. I mean, back in the 70s and 80s, we used to talk about wine lakes and, and butter mountains because you know, we were paid from Europe to produce and produce and produce and we have too much. Now we stopped that system, but nothing's really replaced that. So instead of being paid to produce food, farmers are just paid for the amount of land they have and what they do, but not necessarily to, you know, to pay them to produce more and more. Pay them to do things like planting trees that mixes in with their farmed environment, to um, protect peatlands and peaty soils, because that they can you know, cause huge emissions, to, to have precision technologies which reduce the amount of nitrogen fertiliser we use, um, the, reduce the amount of um, soya in feed and that sort of things, all those things which inherently produce emissions in their, in, their, in their production cycle. And we can reduce emissions down. We'll always have some emissions from farming and how we manage the land, but we need to do it to, we need to work to minimise those emissions. All farmers are interested in climate change um, because everything they do is connected to the climate. So they're trying to manage nature in a way that produces more food than would naturally happen. And that's obviously governed by and limited by the climate. So we did a project in East Lothian where we followed one farmer for three years. He was trying to mitigate against climate change and reduce his carbon footprint. Well, one of the biggest things arable farmers can do is to nutrient budget. So they basically work out how much fertiliser they need based on soil samples and crop demand and you'd think that's a fairly straightforward thing to do but it's actually quite complicated so most people not most people but a lot of farmers will just use a blanket fertilizer treatment the same amount every year without necessarily soil sampling as regularly as they could so that was quite a good message that came out of it we did some soil samples we found out he was putting on too much of certain types of fertilizer that he didn't need to so he was wasting money and you know, fertilizer's got a big carbon footprint. That's one of the biggest things in arable farming that your carbon footprint will come from is the use of fertilizers. Soil sample is about 20 pounds a field to get done. So say you've got, I don't know, 20 fields, obviously that's going to be like 400 pounds plus your time to take the samples or you pay someone to come and do it for you because soils are really complex and, and nutrients are quite difficult to, to understand. So most farmers have a really good grasp of the basics of that. Um, but they wouldn't necessarily be comfortable doing the calculations. He also tried cover cropping, which is where you sow a crop into the soil after you've taken off your main crops. So say he was growing wheat, you would then sow in a cover crop once the wheat was harvested. And the idea behind that is that the, that crop grows over the winter and captures nutrients that would otherwise be lost, like through rainfall over the winter. So that was quite successful as well. So we did that. We've just done a big project at work, working out how many farms are like low in pH, and pH is one of the most basic things to get right before you worry about your nutrients. Um, and so many farms either aren't soil sampling or, or haven't got their pH right. We do so much work trying to educate farmers on the importance of it, but I guess it's pro they probably still see it as cheaper just to buy fertilizer, which at the end of the day, if they worked it out over a few years, you would soon, you would soon save, um, or at least even out your crop. You know, because you might end up with a more even growth in your whole field if there's areas that are deficient. All the heavy rainfall we've been having has been damaging the soil, which makes it difficult to, to cultivate and sow crops. We're finding that this year. We're quite behind because it's been wet. So anything you can do to make yourself more resilient to that um, and your soil in better condition um, is, is going to help. The government had a climate change plan come out last year, which really didn't move farming very further forward. It basically said that you know, farming needs to reduce by you know, less than 10% its emissions by 2032, which is nowhere near enough. Local always isn't always the best because sometimes a local farmer could be using lots of fertiliser and having bad practices. If you know where it comes from, at least it cuts out all the emissions from the distribution chain. And the, you know, I, I always, I always bought like buying apples that come from New Zealand or South Africa because I think, well, they've just been flown in and are or, or shipped in and I don't really want to buy those. Buy organic. Um, not, all, not all organic is perfect, but like in general, it's a much better system. Um, and, and, and yeah, try to buy from shops like in, in Glasgow, south side Glasgow, there's a place called Locavore, which, which is local food, organically produced. Okay, you, you can pay a bit more for that food, but 
you know, you know your confidence is there that it's, that it's sustainable. I think it's great, but I don't think we can feed the world with organic farming. The population's too big. Um, so the yields that you get from organic farming aren't as good as, I'll call it conventional, it's not really conventional, but, um, you know, with fertilisers and sprays, because the sprays and fertilisers are there to boost natural soil fertility and control pests and diseases. Um, in cereals, for example, in a wet year, you get a lot of disease, which is transferred by wet weather and exacerbated by wet weather. So if we're, if we're going to get wetter spells and more extreme weather, which is what's predicted, then disease incidence is probably going to increase. And then you run the risk of losing your entire crop or you know losing 50% of the yield because you've got a disease that you can't spray. So I think organic farming's great. And I think it could work in this country to feed us, but we've got such a booming whiskey industry. Um, so spring barley wouldn't be as... You can't really grow organic spring barley for malting because they've got such specific parameters they're looking for. Um, I just don't think it'd be of the quality that, or the quantity that we need. We spend a lot of money on sprays. A lot. And I don't like that because you see the sprayer going out and you think... That can't be good <laughs> going into the atmosphere. I mean, we've got sprayer technology with special nozzles and anti-drift to try and stop it. And you can only spray in good conditions. You can't spray when it's windy. Um, you know, just good farming practice and regulations that we have in this country. But you're still spraying a chemical onto something that we're ultimately going to eat. And you think, you know, what, what are the impacts of that? I also had lots of conversations about eating meat and dairy. Many of my climates have decided to give up or eat far less meat and dairy because of the impact that farming animals has on the environment. Why is having vegans everywhere speaking? Subway, vegan Greg's. Like, what is going on? Well, if I just go to a vegetable-based diet, I'd fart a bit more myself. But um, there'll be less cruelty. That's a good thing. And um, you know, we're saving the planet. One. Greg's vegan sausage roll at a time. So people are making the changes, little by little. So do you think this is a good thing, the vegans? Oh, of course. The the question that I've always been had as like a lifelong vegetarian is like, yeah, but if you were dying, would you eat meat? And I'm like, I don't really know if I was in that situation. Like, I hope I never have to find out. Probably, well, again, but it's like, it would make me wretch. Uh, but the uh, it's kind of the opposite. It's like right, so humanity is dying. Like, <laughs> well, would you eat some chickpeas? <laughs> I saw a, I saw a meme about veganism the other day, which said that being vegan uh, increases your likelihood of being stranded or stranded on an island by one million percent. Why? Because. Because there's always these extreme questions that are uh, unlikely to happen. Like, if you were on the verge of dying and you could only save yourself by eating a pork sausage, what would you do? Like, well, fair enough, but that's incredibly <laughs> unlikely to happen. It's it's people being offended because they suspect deep down that it's probably the right thing to do to stop eating meat, but they're too attached to it. I mean, that's the only reason people get offended by it. They take it as an assault on themselves, even if... Someone just says, oh, I don't eat meat. The meat eaters in the room will suddenly feel guilty and, and strike back. I loved your story about your mum, though. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so my mum is um, she's in her 70s and uh, my parents have... Well, my dad is very set in his ways about food. very <laughs> much a... Uh, meat and not even two veg man just meat and potatoes please um and so i i decided i was going to be vegetarian and then about two weeks later i decided i was going to be vegan because i found that being vegetarian i was just eating lots of dairy products which is not much better um and so my mum i think because she even though i'm 40 she still feels like she ought to be providing for me when I come home and feeding me. Um, had started trying to learn how to make vegetarian and vegan food. Um, and I discovered months later that um, she had a little, like a little scrapbook full of recipes cut out from magazines and things printed off the internet and stuff 
but they were things that friends of hers in the village had been spotting and and giving to her. It, it slightly amuses me because it feels a bit like I'm. It, it's almost like a sympathy vote for her. It's like, oh my goodness, you've got a vegan daughter. How awful! <laughs> Here, here's some support for you. But on another level, it's really, really lovely that she's trying to do that and she's she's willing to experiment and do something differently, and that other people are recognising that that's. You know, they're spotting things in magazines and going, oh, maybe that's something that she would like to to try. So, yeah, no, it's, it feels like a lovely community reaction to something that's, that's you know, quite unusual for that part of the world. Um, and she's even, she told me on the phone the other day, she's been trying to have meat-free days, even for my dad, which I think she's having to sneak through by doing things like, a really hearty lentil and vegetable soup and then some kind of pudding so he doesn't notice that he's not had meat but yeah she's um she's trying which is amazing <laughs> this is a scene that's running through a lot of the conversations is this sneaky um <laughs> sneakiness and i confess i am today baking some vegan brownies that i'm not going to tell anyone are vegan until after they've eaten them obviously i'm a meat eater and we produce beef um and it upsets me, this sort of anti-meat campaign, but I fully accept that we should probably all be eating less meat. And by less meat, I don't mean less Scottish produce, I just mean less. Because it, like, it baffles me that we import lamb from New Zealand, and that's available to buy in the supermarket all year round. How is that better for the environment or more environmental sound than the lamb that we produce in this country? Because most of Scotland isn't suitable for growing crops. It's only suitable for grazing livestock. So we've got tons of lamb. So why are we importing it all the way from New Zealand? You think, what is the carbon footprint of that? And people aren't really making that, you know, they're not reading the labels in the shop and bothering. Yeah, and in this country, we don't feed very much soya. Like, we don't feed our cattle soya at all. Um, No. Um, So some people do, and some dairies do, because it is a feed that we import into this country, but it's not necessarily the cheapest. And so our cattle are fed on silage, which is fermented grass, which we obviously grow the grass ourselves. We cut it and either bale it and wrap it in plastic, which isn't ideal, or put it in a big pit and cover it in plastic, and then it ferments, and that provides some fodder for the winter. So they're fed on that barley, which we grow ourselves, and then we we buy in um, dark grains, which is a byproduct of the distillery industry. So most people don't feed soya. Um, so these stats that you're seeing about um, soya fed to beef cattle, that's that's like America. Wow. So but. So that's what, you know, South America, Brazil, I don't know about European beef, it could be the same. So all these stats that are being bandied around are global stats and not necessarily Scottish. So um, my worker working on working out proper carbon footprints for for beef beef enterprises in the UK. Um, And it depends on where you get your feed from. But yeah, I mean, I get... There's not just environmental aspect to things. I understand people being concerned about animal welfare as well. Um, so, you know, I'm not um, anti-vegan or against people going vegan or anything. I just feel we've had a lot of misinformation in the press that has made people make the decision to be vegan and being very vocal about it, you know, on social media and things, bad-mouthing farmers, uh, you know, some vegans, obviously not them all, Um to the point where it's you know sort of damaging the industry and and what we're trying to produce and you know we're being tarred with the same brush as these massive cattle ranches in america where they're all standing out in the heat and there's no shelter and you know they're fed on soya and um you know scottish livestock farming is nothing like that um so it's it's a very i think you're right it's just it's hard to get the information on where things have come from so if you feel you can't make that decision because you don't know then you know that's a sad sad state that people can't make an educated decision because information's not theirs you know there's a we've got a long way to go with labeling i think it's all the pastries and the ready meals and the things that you buy that say milk powder or powder and i'm starting to be a bit suspicious that that's not traceable yeah, so I just don't buy that sort of stuff for that reason because I'm just like, where's that come from? And the things that contain palm oil, see, that gets me as well. You're like, where's, you know, how do you know it's sustainable and why Why is palm oil and everything? Yeah, because I found, uh, yeah, vegan jam tarts. Yeah? Yeah, but a lot of jam tarts are vegan. The hard part is finding ones that don't have um, 
egg in or milk in sorry and also have palm oil in i'm trying to avoid palm oil palm oil is in everything stop killing orangutans people uh, there's not an internationally or nationally recognized registration scheme for uh, sustainably produced palm oil so although some some companies go out of their way to find palm oil that is sustainable um there's no way of telling whether or not it is or not that's by the time it gets to the consumer. We we need to avoid using in palm oil. I think it's 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 not something that is, um, it, it, by and large is 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 sustainable. It's it's cause major cause of of deforestation. I mean, it would be perfectly possible to develop a new kind of agriculture in the in the tropics that. Um, in some way, perhaps mimics or parallels the traditional way of of growing tree crops in in sort of mixed areas in the in the tropics, and there there are some classic examples of 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 agroforestry or tree farming in the tropics, where you had a a mixture of different um, plants grown together, and that might include things, other tree crops like coffee, for example, or cocoa, but um, and and that would produce these products that could become luxury projects and products, um, and and of high value and so on. But to essentially any large area plantation um, is going to be very difficult to describe as sustainable. And in most cases, we're talking about uh, large areas that can be managed by, for example, spraying by air, um, so that your poisoning the the watercourses you're killing the the aquatic life the the, the fish because i don't think guilt is helpful for climate change i think well i think a certain amount of guilt is but if you if you really lay on the guilt people they start getting defensive and then just go well they like screw you kind of thing i'm gonna do it more <laughs> um i don't i get guilty about everything and then i just i end up not you know i come home and i've just got no food in the fridge because i've had such a sat in the supermarket and there's nothing that I can buy that's actually like sustainable or like neutral and I just come home and go I don't have any food so I think everyone needs to eat less meat and so maybe like once or twice a week have a roast or something and that's what they used to do they'd make a roast on the Sunday and then they would feed themselves for the rest of the week you know with you know stew the following day and then maybe soup or something with the, the bones the following day and then it'd often be bulked out with vegetables and I think there isn't the same demand for meat that there used to be, uh, certainly not British meat in that way. And I think that because of that, I think ultimately we might end up losing a lot of sheep farms because there isn't the money in it for farmers anymore. They might end up rewilding in something that is more sustainable and captures more carbon than hill farming does. But, you know, there's the peat and stuff that's underneath all these moorlands that's capturing carbon as it's there. It's unlikely they're going to go back to natural forests you know, of their own accord, it might just end up covered in bracken or something. A lot of the stuff that came out after the IPCC report said that the answer was to go vegan, and that's not what the report said. It said to make more sustainable choices and reduce meat consumption. And people are choosing chicken because they think it's a lower carbon footprint. It may be, but if you've ever been into a poultry farm, it certainly puts you off buying chicken out of a supermarket. Mm. Um yeah, because you just you walk into these sheds and they're classed as free range and the doors open, but they're not going out. You know, there's too many of them. They can't all physically get out the door and back in in the day. You know, there's thousands of them. And they're also not, and the chickens are jungle animals, jungle birds. They want cover and their doors open to an empty field. They're not, they don't want to go out there. So you get, you know, you'll maybe get a hundred out of the 20,000 in the shed go out. Um, but, you know, if I go into, if I, I've been in poultry sheds and I'm just, horrified um so it might be the more sustainable choice in terms of carbon footprint but it's certainly not the most ethical choice i don't think exactly there's a, there's a frankie boyle joke i saw recently which is going vegan isn't the best thing you can do for the environment going cannibal is the best thing you can do for the environment and if you want to be extra good eat a pilot <laughs> there are certain political tranche of vegans who don't do the cause any good at all by being in your face. Um, well, I think that there is a place for that, but I think it also can put a lot of people off.
and they go, I don't want to be a nutter like them. Uh, and there are different reasons for it. There's the environmental reason, there's the the uh, animal welfare reason, and there's the, the, the health benefits reason. And probably others, but those are the three main ones I can think of. Did you read Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer? Have I talked to you about that before? No. That was, I when I went vegetarian, I read that book as a kind of like, I'm going to be really smug about being a vegetarian. And then uh, I, like, read it and was just like, ah, I need to be vegan. Like, that that's the thing that came out of it for me, was just like, it's not good enough, my about being vegetarian for ethical reasons like it's not good enough <laughs> and so then I like I had kind of in my head been like I'm going to go vegetarian and then I'll think about being vegan and it made the process so much quicker because I was like actually now I'm vegetarian it doesn't take so much to be vegan so I went from like being a, totally like eating absolutely everything to like being vegan in like less than a year I, I, when I went vegetarian, very quickly, when I started, um, like, at the beginning, when I was like, oh, I think I miss bacon, I just trained myself to really think about how gross meat was. And now I don't really walk down the meat aisles of supermarkets because it gives me the heebie-jeebies. And that was really quick. Like, I just neuro-linguistically programmed myself to go, oh, my goodness, that's a dead animal. That's so weird that people eat that. So maybe that's it. Maybe it is just a... And it's, you know, like with the smoking ban, how weird would it be if someone smoked next to you in an office now? It's, it can be really positive to make a yeah. change. So many delicious things to eat. People are really afraid. They, they don't need to be as afraid as they are, I think. I agree. Did you watch the Simon Amstel programme on BBC iPlayer? Carnage. I did, yeah. I watched that. Because I think that that was... I also enjoyed the, that one in terms of, like, the way that was normalised loads of things that are, are horrific. And this kind of, like, by by looking back on this current time and making a joke out of how ridiculous it is, I thought that was a clever way of highlighting some of the things we do. I thought it was clever. To be honest, when I watched it, I think I thought it was fiction. Like, it was um, heightened to make a point. Ah. Oh. Oh, no, I was like, whoa, this is bleak, isn't it? KFC started trialling a vegan chicken burger, <laughs> which is, on the one hand, positive, but on the other hand, it's going into a place that's built its entire empire on killing chickens in order to boost their profits with a, the current... Um, climate of uh, veganism and environmental awareness so it's difficult it's a kind of like grey area isn't it I mean it's good it's positive but it's not a case you're going we won't we won't use chicken yeah Kentucky fried tofu um I think the one thing about being purely vegan the issue is honey yeah I'm not sure where I feel about honey at the moment because I, didn't, I haven't looked into it. I, even when I did go vegan before, I actually did still have honey. And one of the reasons for that is because I know how important the bees are. Yeah. And if we're, if people stop buying honey, well, people stop doing beekeeping because there's no money in it. It's their livelihood. And then are we going to have even more issues with bees disappearing. Actually, I've been thinking about that as well, not saying I'm vegan, because I feel like it's such a label. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. Like, um, it's like, it depicts it's like a religion or something, which it isn't. It's just, a, it's just a, a dietary choice. So I feel like saying that I have a vegan diet just puts it in perspective a bit. It's like some people act as if you have some sort of eating disorder. Yeah, yeah. And it's totally the subject of uh, conversation, which is really difficult. I don't know about you, but I find it really difficult to have a have a meal out with people and it not be dominated by chatting about a vegan diet. Yeah. I bumped into this woman uh, at the shops yesterday who I don't know that well. I've met her at a couple of social engagements and... Uh, you know, so we don't know each other that well, so there's not a lot to chat about. And one of our questions was for me, so are you still vegan? 
and I was a bit like, yeah, you know, and it's that, that's what I mean about it, it kind of becomes your identity, it's your distinguishing feature. Generally, most places you can go walk into and get something. Although, apart from Pit Lockery, Pit Lockery <laughs> is... Vegan Black Hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just get no choice whatsoever. Um, a lot of wraps. Yeah? Yeah, a lot of wraps and chips. Okay, yeah, I, I eat a lot of chips. I probably eat more chips now than I ever have. Chips for vegans. Yeah. It's my band name. <laughs> yeah, it's a good band name. I was going to do one after this. It's a, a sort of vegan cooking one called Kitchums. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Here's a short extract of what that might be like. I made my own mayonnaise the other day. What? How yeah. did you do that? Out of the juice from the can of chickpeas and some oil and some lemon juice and then you like blitz it all up and I added loads of mustard. It was amazing. I've heard about this chickpea juice. Like, really? Chickpea yeah. juice? Apparently you can make meringues. Is that? Well, yeah. The, so I, I always have a thing where I was like, ah, I'm wasting this. Because people, this is always in recipes that you're like, I could use this. But I'm like, I just want to make some hummus. <laughs> But, so then the other day I kept it in a little pot and then I looked up to see if you could make mayonnaise with it. And then it turned out, because also I'm not very good at like getting ingredients. I just want to use what I've got in the house. So then it turned out I had everything I needed to make it. And it was great. I'm using my butternut squash with um, B12 flakes and a bit of vinegar um, oh. and whizzing it up. So you roast it and then you, you put it in with these B12 flakes vinegar um, a little bit of salt and pepper and you whiz it and it's the most delicious cheesy sauce so you can have it in oh, lasagna and that on sounds really good over here. Yeah. Um, a risotto or anything like that it's sweet and <laughs> delicious and a lot cheaper than using cashew nuts oh yeah yeah I've never actually made my own cashew nut cheese sauce but I believe it would be good these conversations have made me change my diet We've become so disconnected from how and what we eat. I've done some research, weighed it up, and decided that with what's available to me where I live and what I like to eat, I feel good about eating vegan for now. At the moment in our house, like, there's breast milk, I've got oat milk, Dan's got skimmed milk, Martin's got full fat milk. And I'm like, this can't be the where we end up. This isn't the right amount of, there's too many milks. This has been one of the toughest episodes to edit down. People really care about food. We love talking about it. And it's an exciting part of the whole picture because of the social and emotional connections that we have with food. Now I'm hungry. The next episode is a really interesting one too. It's all about travel. And did I talk to you about my current catchphrase that I'm trying to have more awareness of? They're like, do less, do it slower. You didn't. Tell me more about that. That, that. It's just that. Do less. Do it slower. So just, just that. Thank you to all my climates. In this episode, there was Shan, Lily, Pab, Greta, Michael, Stanley, Derek, Aaron, Geraldine, Abigail, Pab, Kevin, Ian, MJ, Jim, Michael, Lizzie, Heather, Anne, and I'm Hazel. Thank you so much for listening. It's an independent production. So I'm a mum making this in my bedroom and the only support that I have is that of my mum looking after the kids and my husband putting up with me going on and on about it. So if you enjoyed the podcast and you can tell your friends, share a link to it on social media or leave me a nice review, that would be amazing. Thank you so much. We'll come. You want to change the world, you can't stand by. Podcast. That was good. <laughs> <laughs>